Good morning, church. Um, today, my name is Rexmay. Today, I'm going to read the Bible, Genesis 43, from 1 to 15. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grains they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man that you had another brother? They reply, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us, do you have another brother? We simply answer his questions. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? Then Judah said to Israel, his fathers, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if you had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of these best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and little honey, some spices and myrrh, some potato nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of the silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, and I am bereaved, and I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and double of the amount of silver, and Benjamin also, they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. Thank you. Thanks, Rex. Morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to those in the room. Happy Father's Day to those at home. It goes all day. <laughs> Best day of the year. Finally, we get some recognition. <laughs> Today, I don't have to wash up, clean up. I did stumble. I did help make the bed this morning. But I'm not doing anything else for the rest of this day. And it goes all day. Where is she? Oh, daughter's here, close enough. <laughs> going to have a cooked lunch, going to enjoy that. There'll be dessert. There'll be dessert. <laughs> Chicken wings tonight for dinner. Got the whole day planned. Best day of the year. For the last 40 years, 41 years since we've been in ministry, something like that, on every Sunday morning, Rhonda makes me breakfast. because I'm praying and reading and finishing my sermon. <laughs> this morning was no exception to that. 
So Father's Day always begins early for me. Not as early as Pastor Charlie did this morning. It's a wonderful day. And I think uh, not only children, but wives, you need to step up. If the kids are grown up or gone, then it's time to spoil your man. I've got nothing else to say today. This is the message. <laughs> it's Father's Day. May God bless all the dads. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a delight to have you as our heavenly Father. You are so good to us, good beyond our comprehension. We are the continual recipients of your abundant grace and mercy and goodness. So this morning, Lord, we come together again for you, our Heavenly Father, to feed us spiritual truth that you might nourish us, that we might grow to be strong and healthy and mature followers of the Lord Jesus, our elder brother our Lord and Saviour. So we ask the Holy Spirit to do his thing, to take your word and to speak truth into our lives that on this day, on this Father's Day, we might be transformed into passionate followers of Jesus. We ask and pray this in his name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Goes all day, don't forget. I'll remind you at the end. Chapter 43, this is like, do you watch Netflix and series on Netflix and stuff? Rhonda and I like to do that, like it's almost binging. You watch, say it's a seven-week series, then we sort of watch it like in a week, you know, one day, at a, a day at a time. And there's nothing worse than starting a series and they haven't finished downloading it. They haven't finished producing it, so you have to wait. One of the areas of my personality that God is continuing to work on. This story of Joseph and these sermons on Sunday is a bit like a TV series on Netflix and it's downloading one a week. So it sort of gets so far and it stops and you've got to wait for next week for the next instalment. This story, chapter 43, is continuing from 42. That's where the story starts. And then it goes into about chapter 46. So we've got a few chapters to go. There are about three, four meetings between Joseph and his brothers this morning we're going to hit meeting number two and then next week meeting number three and then the week after that will be meeting number four and so on. This one divides almost in half. There are predicaments in Canaan and there's a party in Egypt. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, most of you probably weren't around then, where there was a song, a famous song, all you need is love. It's easy if you try. Love's not easy. To love the people who love you, to love the people who are lovely, who are nice, who are responsive, to love the people who think you're wonderful or you're great or whatever, that's easy. But to love the people who are cranky, angry, bitter, cantankerous, nasty, that's not easy. To love the lovely, that's natural. To love the unlovely, that's supernatural. Payback is natural. Pardon is supernatural. In this chapter, we're going to see Joseph. Last week, he exercised tough love to his estranged brothers. Today, he's going to be demonstrating heartfelt love 
for them. So let's jump into this. Joseph's tough love. We had a look at that last week. And as I said already, this is going to be the second meeting that he's about to have in a little while with his brothers. Joseph had been tested. He'd been tested in the fires of adversity and past, had come through that, kept his eyes on God. And then what can be even more difficult, believe it or not, is to keep your eyes on God in the midst of prosperity when everything is going well. We almost get to the point of saying, I don't need God. We would never say that. But we behave that way. I've told you before on numerous occasions that the church in Cuba, Brother Andrew would tell us from Open Doors Ministries years ago, when people would leave the island of Cuba and head to the United States, the elders of the church would pray for them that they would keep their faith. They had kept their faith on the island of Cuba amidst persecution and opposition. But to go to a land like America where there was no persecution, where there was no opposition, where there was an abundance and affluence and prosperity. And many Christians who left Cuba left the faith. It's tough to stay true in the midst of prosperity. Joseph did. In every situation that God placed him, whether it was at the home where he was spoilt by his dad, or in the house of Potiphar when he was sold as a slave, or in prison where he again rose to the top, or indeed even in the palace. God blessed him, used him. He was incredibly successful. He just seemed to be a person who went with the flow. Whatever situation he was in, he was able to adapt and so on. And then came the story last week where he meets up with his brothers, whom he hasn't seen for 22 years. And he recognises them, but they don't recognise him. And he's got an insight. He has some sort of divine awareness that he was not simply to say, I'm Joseph, welcome. Rather, he kept that hidden. God was doing a work in them through him because they remembered his dreams. And so when they came and they bowed before him, it was a trigger of saying, God's at work here. God is doing something. And so Joseph exercises tough love. What are the sorts of tools that God will even continue to use tough times in our lives and sometimes it'll be through our loved ones in this case it was a famine it could be drought or disease or locusts or plagues or whatever remember the story of the prodigal son he went into a far country with an abundance and it wasn't until he got the pinch of want until he had lost squandered all of his money and then he was hungry that then he turned his eyes and minds back to God back to his father God will sometimes use that as a tough tool, removing good things from us, placing us times of affliction, times of difficulty to get our attention. Last week it was Joseph treating his brothers harshly, both verbally, accusing them of being spies, but also physically throwing them in prison, all with a view to God doing a work in them. God uses the truth. Truth can unsettle us can awaken our conscience. God allows the things that we have done, what we've planted, what we've sown, we reap, that it's repeated in our life, that the way you've done to something, the way you've behaved or the way you've treated somebody else happens to you. You ever notice that? That's God's tool. God trying to get your attention. God at work in your life. It could be painful choices like these 10 brothers, they had to choose one. 
was eventually removed from them, but it was a painful choice. Sometimes we've got painful choices to make. God uses guilt to remind us of our past sins. Even in the brothers here in this story and last week and again this week, there's an awareness that God is present and God is doing something. They just had this knowledge. God uses circumstances and coincidences, good and bad. The Holy Spirit certainly convicts of sin, of righteousness, our need of it, and of coming judgment. These are the tools that God seems to use in our world and in our life. But he doesn't just use the difficult stuff, he can also use blessing. So let's do the first half of the story, predicament in Canaan, verse 1. Now the feminine was severe in the land. Remember from last week, the brothers have come back, the donkeys are laden with grain, and they inform their dad that Simeon is still in jail down there and that if we don't take Benjamin with us, then there's no point going because we won't see his face, he won't sell us any grain. So bring Benjamin or don't come. That was how we left it last week. And I didn't do it last week, but in the midst of that, Reuben, the eldest son, said, let me take Benjamin with you, and if I fail to bring him back, you can take my two sons and kill them. What? Jacob, of course, is horrified by Reuben's suggestion. And basically, Jacob says, I will never trust you with any of my sons. And even when Jacob is on his dying bed in Genesis 49, he'll talk about Reuben as being a violent man. that He hadn't changed too much. So God was using the famine. The grain was running out. They were getting hungry. Jacob said, point blank, Benjamin is not going. End of discussion. This family is rather dysfunctional. And dad, Jacob, is not really setting a good, strong example of how to be a good parent or of how to demonstrate godliness to the next generation. So when they'd eaten all of the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, so it's the motivation of hunger, isn't it? Even hunger will get the stubborn people to do that which they ought to be doing. All right, go back, buy a little food. doesn't say take Benjamin, just you go. Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. So Judah is stepping up. Judah is starting to take the lead. He's son number four. And this is basically what he says. If you let Ben go, then we'll go. If you don't let Ben go, then we won't go. There's no point in going if we can't take Ben with us. That's basically what Judah says. This is dad's response. Why do you bring this trouble on me by telling the man, the man, that you had another brother? It's your fault. You shouldn't have told him. This is the dad talking to the sons. Jacob blames them. He makes them feel guilty for his sorrows. He's blind to his own favouritism of the way he's now treating Benjamin, as he had been blind to being favourites, treating Joseph as a favourite. Jacob was a difficult dad to deal with. He likes to control the situation and he refuses to face reality. If you were a member of that family, what would you do? It's tough. Well, the sons felt they couldn't say anything. Whether they had tried or not, it's not recorded for us. But Jacob is not being a good dad at this point. The brothers reply to Jacob's question, why did you, why did, all, why did you tell him? Well, he was asking us questions. We answered the questions. How did we know he was going to say, bring your younger brother down here? 
we simply answer these questions. Then Judah, stepping up into leadership, said to Israel, his father, notice the name change, Israel, Jacob, send the boy along with me and we'll go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. Send him at once. They've already delayed. They've already run out of food. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. He's acting as a substitute. He's putting himself in place. Just like out of the tribe of Judah will come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who is our substitute. This Judah was the one who also suggested that Joseph... Uh, we won't get anything for him if we let him die in the pit. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. That was Judah. Now he's got a change of heart. You can see Judah is changing. He's being transformed from his old selfish ways into more like the man that God wants him to be. Let me take Benjamin. Benjamin's not a kid. Benjamin's 27 years of age. And he's still pretty much under the shadow and control of Jacob. I'm not told a lot about what he thought about all of this dispute that was going on. But Judah steps up, makes this commendable offer. If I fail, it's on me. You know, do with me as you will. As it is, he says, if we hadn't delayed, this is to dad, then we would have gone down and come back twice. It's about 250 miles or something like that. So there's a long delay Imagine what's going through Joseph's mind down in Egypt. Where are they? Are they coming back? Are they going to abandon Simeon in prison? Then Jacob, the dad, is he still being controlling? It's still the same old tune. It's all about him. Remember when he went to Medesor, he sent gifts ahead of him? Well, he's doing it again. Here, verse 11, he says, take the best products of the land, pistachio nuts and some dates and something else, some things either not affected by the famine. Interestingly, the products he sends are exactly the same products that the Ishmaelites were taking down to Egypt 22 years ahead of this. So take some gifts, best products of the land, take double the money, give back what they returned the first time and take some to buy some more and take your brother, Benjamin. Then he prays for them. And may God Almighty, El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man so that he will let you, your other brother, doesn't name him, so he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Take a present, take the money, take your brother. It's logical. There's a risk involved, but it's worth the risk. If they do nothing, they will die. If they go down, there is a chance they may die, but they may not. So it's worth the risk. And El Shaddai, Jacob is Israel, is returning to his God-focused outlook. May God Almighty. That's what his dad had said to him. Isaac, when he was leaving, Isaac blessed him by saying, may God Almighty go before you and watch over you. Now Jacob is passing that on to his sons. May El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, watch over you, give you favour and mercy. May you not only get your brothers back, 
but may Benjamin be returned as well. And he accepts it. Is it a resignation to blind fate or is it a submission to God's providence? As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. What God wills, what God allows, I accept. Perhaps he has gone that far. I came across a new book this week by Max Licardo, who is one of my favourite authors and one of my sins is if Max Licardo writes a book, then I buy it. The new book is on Jacob. I went, oh, how exciting. I looked in the book and there's nothing on Joseph. But the one on Jacob is great. He looks at Jacob and the title of the book is God Didn't Give Up on Jacob. Even though he had drifted, even though he had become self-focused and full of self-pity, even though he was a terrible parent, and he made blunder after blunder after blunder. God didn't give up on him. God took him. God was shaping him, even though he was resistant to it. And just like God didn't give up on Jacob, so he won't give up on you. Even if you're resisting him at the moment. Jacob was, a, was flawed, aren't we all? But he was a fraud, a deceiver. And he was certainly broken. And if God could use Jacob, take Jacob, then he can use us as well. Grace exists for Jacob, but grace exists for all of us because we all fail. fail. Um, so the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of money and Benjamin. They hurried down to Egypt and they presented their gifts there. I wonder what it was like on the way travelling down. I wonder what they thought. They've got to explain the money situation, how we have the money back and we didn't pay it the first time. I've probably rehearsed various options and who's going to be the spokesman, who's going to say what. We have to present Benjamin to the ruler. We have to get Simeon out of prison. We have to request more grain and pay for it. And we also have to protect Benjamin. All of that is going through their minds. Joseph down in Egypt, where are they? Will they return? Well, I told you about Jacob. In Licardo's book, he talks about the Japanese art of, how do you say that? Kintsugi? Is that it? Apologies for the pronunciation if it's wrong. Kintsugi is the ancient art from about the 15th century, apparently, of where they take broken jars, broken pottery, and instead of throwing it away, they fix it. They glue it back together again. And rather than hiding the cracks, they beautify the cracks. They take a lacquer or a glue and they put the pieces back together very carefully. And then over the cracks, over the, the adhesive, they put either very fine gold powder or silver powder. And so then along the cracks are these gold and silver veins circling this thing. So a thing of brokenness becomes a thing of beauty. It's wonderful, isn't it? What a great illustration of what God does in our lives. I love the old quote that says, God can heal a broken heart. He just needs all of the pieces. Giving our whole self to him. And he can have his will and way in us. So the result, something beautiful. Every crack transformed with the lines of gold and silver winding its way around the pottery. Once broken, but now gloriously restored. 
That's what God's doing in Jacob. That's what he's doing in the brothers. That's what he's doing in us. So that's the predicament in Canaan. What are we going to do? And there were lessons to learn. Now there's going to be a party. They came expecting trouble, and this is what happens when they arrive there. When Joseph saw Benjamin, so he sees them coming before they see him, and Joseph sees Benjamin. They haven't seen him yet. He turns to his steward, the chief butler, the chief steward of the house with all of the staff under him. And he says to the steward, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. We're going to have a barbecue. They will eat with me at noon. All of my appointments run up till noon. I'll be home at noon and we're going to have a barbecue together. This is a conversation with a steward. The brothers are coming in to Egypt. The man, the man, the steward, did as Joseph told him and he took them to his house. So they're on journey going to the house. What are the brothers thinking? Last time we came, he spoke harshly with us. He threw us in jail and he warned us. Bring your brother down here or don't bother coming. Now he's taking us to his house. My goodness, it's like going to the principal's office. What's he going to do? So they were frightened. Why is he taking us to his house? And then they think to themselves, we were, um, we were brought here because of the money, because of the silver. You know, the money that was put back in our sacks, he's found out about it. Now he's going to hold us accountable for it. And then they reason, he wants to attack us, he wants to overpower us, he wants to seize us and slave us, and he wants our donkeys. Good donkeys. Second richest man in Egypt wants our donkeys. It's ridiculous, isn't it? That's what fear does. God is at work in their lives and they've still got to put things right. Things still aren't right. They're on the process, they're on the journey, but they have completely misunderstood what is going on. So what do you do when you're frightened like that? Well, they need a mediator. So they went off to the steward of the house. They weren't yet inside the house. They have arrived at the house. They're outside the house and the steward is standing in the doorway. So they went to Joseph's steward and they spoke to him at the entrance to the house. And they confessed to him and they basically say, last time we came down, we came down to buy food and we paid it with the money. But on the way home, we opened our sack. One of us opened our sack and we found the money. And when we got home, all of us had our money returned to us. We don't know how that happened. We didn't do it. But we've bought double the amount to give that back and to give this. And the steward looked at him, at them, and the steward surprises them. They're going to get three shocks besides the shock of being invited to Joseph's house, the steward said, it's all right. That's how it comes across in English. That's pretty good Aussie speak, isn't it? That's how we sort of say it as well. It's all right. No worries. It's all good. The Hebrew word is shalom. In Egyptian, speaking Hebrew to the brothers. Uh-huh. Shalom. Don't be afraid, he said. Second surprise, your God, the God of your father. How does he know about God? Has Joseph been talking to him? Have the ruler influenced him? How does he know about the true and living God? Your God, the God of your father, has given your treasure into your sacks. I received your silver. You're not lying. Joseph paid for it. And what the steward is basically saying is he's acknowledging, because he knows that, Jacob, uh, that Joseph ordered them the money to be put back, 
All of the steward is acknowledging is indicating that God did his work through human agents. I received your silver. All statements are true. Here is a pagan unbeliever instructing God's sons about God's providential care. Had Joseph told the steward to say this? Had Joseph influenced the steward? Had God used Joseph in Egypt to influence his steward, to influence Pharaoh, to bring them to a faith in the true and living God? Was he an instrument in God's hand in Egypt? Well, the next shock, shock of being invited to the house, shock of hearing shalom, shock of hearing about your God. Next shock, and they brought out Simeon out to them. How did he know that that man standing there was Benjamin? I guess Joseph must have told him. Simeon is brought out. I wonder how he felt about coming out of prison. Do you think he was excited about it? Well, just think about it. He was in prison for the last little months, however long it was. He got fed three times a day. Where were they? In the land of Canaan, in a famine. They weren't getting three meals a day. I still think he would have been glad to get out of jail, though. And they would have been delighted and hugged each other and so on. Question, did the time that Simeon was in jail benefit him? What did he learn from it? And I pause to emphasise this point this morning because it doesn't appear that it had any impact on him. From what we have recorded about Simeon in the scriptures... He doesn't appear to have changed at all. He's the same violent, cruel man that he was back in Genesis 35. God sends one of his tools, God sends painful experiences to us to grow us, to get our attention, to mature us into hoping and trusting and being patient through suffering. Simeon apparently missed the lesson. We often miss the lesson. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. What does James mean? Well, you've got to get down to verse 5. If anybody lacks wisdom, let them ask God. What he means is, if you're going through a tough time, ask God. God, give me an insight. Give me wisdom to understand what you're doing in this situation. It's in that context that we ask for wisdom to understand what God is working out in our life. And sometimes God works by blessing us and sometimes God works by stretching us. God, what are you doing? You read Genesis 49, that's Jacob on his deathbed and he talks about Simeon. That's how we know that Simeon does not have appeared over the next 17 years to have changed at all. Um, Moving on. The steward took the men into Joseph's house and now they've gone inside. They gave them water to wash their feet. They would have been dusty and smelly from the trip, of course. And he also fed their donkeys. See, these are special donkeys. <laughs> then Joseph comes home. Uh, once they got inside the house, they thought, we know he's coming at midnight, so we've got the nuts and the dates and all of the herbs and spices and things that they brought as a present. They put all of that together, ready to present to Joseph. The ruler, they didn't know it was Joseph. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts that they had brought into the house. How many brothers are there? Eleven. And they bowed down before him to the ground. 
first dream. Eleven brothers bowing before him. That dream is now fulfilled and the other one is to be fulfilled. I came across some research about bowing in Egypt. On Egyptian tombs and in pyramids, there are pictures on walls, hieroglyphics, and pictures of people bowing down to Pharaoh. And from the Amarna letters, an archaeological find, from about the 14th century BC, the protocol of approaching a pharaoh is that as you would come, you would bow seven times forward, seven times. And you would bow seven times going backwards as you left. That's an approaching pharaoh. Joseph's not pharaoh. He's only the prime minister. But nonetheless, the protocol for him would have been doing exactly what they did, all the way down to the ground and then up, which they do on numerous occasions in this meeting. They bowed to the ground. God is at work. I told you about that. Um, He asked them how they were. Here are some more surprises for them. Again, Joseph says to them, Shalom. Do you have shalom? How are you doing? That's what he asked. And then he said, uh, how is the aged father you told me about doing? Does, literally, does the old man have shalom? To which they reply by saying, is he still living? To which they reply by saying, our father does have shalom and he is still alive and he is well. And they bow down again, prostrating themselves as they had done before. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Jacob had prayed that God Almighty would go before them and give them mercy. The mercy seems to be flowing. It seems to be things are going well. And as he looked about, he spots Benjamin, his, young, his full blood brother. And then he pretends the game. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And then he says to Benjamin, God bless you, my son. This is the Egyptian ruler. These Hebrew brothers must have been scratching their head. What's going on? Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurries out into his own private room where the emotions are welling up with him and he weeps. Just lets it go. Delighted to see his brother again as well as the others, but especially Benjamin. He fixes himself up, washes his face, puts his eye makeup back on, goes out. He came out and he simply says to the steward of the house, serve the meal. Serve the food. Let's eat. They all go and sit down. In the structure, the arrangement of it all, he is sitting by himself because of his superior social status. The other Egyptians are sitting by themselves and the brothers are sitting by themselves. This is because the, the Egyptians didn't eat with anybody else, any other foreigner. As far as the Egyptians were concerned, they were the superior race. Everybody else was inferior and were barbarians. That's duplicated in most empires and most nations throughout the ages, isn't it? They served him by himself, brothers by themselves, and there's something else strange. The man had been set before him in the order of their births, chronological order, eldest to youngest. How did he know that? What is going on? Did he divine that in some way? Did he, did God reveal it to him? God is just opening their hearts. 
through God's kindness and goodness. And then when Persians were served, I mean, they just started eating at noon and they just went all afternoon. The conversation flowed, the, the plenty of food, the drinks flowed. And then Joseph, from his own table, would send portions to them. But with Benjamin, they gave him five times the amount. What's going on? Well, he's testing them. He's still delighted that they're there, but he's testing them. Will they be jealous? They were jealous of me when Jacob made me the favourite. What are they going to do now with Benjamin? How will they respond when one is favoured? Will they respond with statements like, that's not fair? Will they complain? Will they resent it? It would appear that they responded well. They were just delighted to be in a positive environment where they are enjoying one another's company and Joseph's company. They don't know it's him yet. And the food and the meals, and they stay there all afternoon and probably that night. It's not till the next day that they'll leave home. What does this passage reveal to us? Well, if you look at it very carefully, you'll see grace and kindness all the way through it. Last week, tough love. This week, grace and kindness, God's goodness. They were taken home for lunch. They didn't have to worry about the money. It had already been paid in full, and besides, you didn't keep your money. Simeon was returned to them, just like Joseph had promised. They were given water to wash their feet. Their donkeys were given food. All of the signs of respect and courtesy, being treated more like friends rather than enemies. Joseph arrived and spoke kindly to them. Last time he was harsh. This time it's, how you doing? Let's eat. Let's eat together. He inquired about their health and about their father. He had a blessing for Benjamin. God be gracious to you, my son. And there was this absolutely elegant feast spread before them. And they enjoyed it. Their fear has been replaced by acceptance and joy. The hostility that they experienced last time has been replaced by hospitality. It's a picture of how God treats us. We are like the brothers and Joseph is like the Lord. Romans 2.4 talks about how God's kindness and goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's what theologians call God's common grace. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, I need to be quick, then you're in the same position as the brothers. You've sinned against the elder brother, the Lord Jesus. He's been using tools in your life to awaken you and bring you to face your sin and to admit your sin. God could send sinners, including us, immediately to eternal punishment, but he doesn't. We're not yet, you may not yet be in Christ, nor are you in hell. You're in between, you're on earth, in good health and plenty. God is blessing you, but his kindness and goodness to you is meant to attract you to him, not for you to ignore him and rely on yourself. We have comfortable homes, we have families, we are employed, we have money in the bank, we eat well, we're even entertained. All of this is God's common grace, his goodness to us in this world. He invites us to turn to him and be grateful. He invites us to apologise for our sin and open our hearts to him. And I remind you, and you know, not everybody enjoys such common grace. God has blessed us. The refugees don't have it, the homeless don't have it, the hungry of the world don't have it.
we have a responsibility towards them. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we are the recipients of God's common grace. God commends his love toward us. He stands with his arms open wide. Turn to me, he says. The doors of heaven are open. Come in. He wants you to return home like the prodigal son. Well, the next chapter, which is where we'll pick it up next week. As morning dawned the next day, the men sell on their way with their donkeys. They're heading home. <laughs> In this chapter, the brothers have taken responsibility and blame for any catastrophe. The brothers have made restitution for the money in the sacks. They have retrieved Simeon from prison. They have recognised God's work in their lives and they have rejoiced in the provisions of that feast, even when one of them received more than the others. That's integrity, honesty, belief and gratitude. Their merriment as they left Egypt this time, next week will turn to misery when the third test, chapter 44, will be a test of their loyalty. How much do they love that boy, Benjamin? How much do they really love their father? There are questions available for reflection which I encourage you to grab a hold of and reread the passage and think about some of these issues more deeply. If you'd like a pastor or an elder to pray for you, then please come forward at the end and that's what we're going to do now. I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we pause in your presence to thank you. Thank you that you haven't given up on us. Thank you that you didn't give up on Jacob. As stubborn as he was, you graciously continued to work on him and through him. So, Lord, do it in us. May your will and may your ways be evident in our lives so that you can work through us. The appropriate response, Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day is that in view of your mercy and your common grace to us, to present ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, this is our reasonable response. This is the right response. So, Lord, thank you for having open arms and an open heart. Help us to embrace you and to flee to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.